Ever since my early days, going all the way back to rabbinical school, I've been a bit intimidated by this uh, Torah portion, Tazria Metzora. Uh, I still remember uh, rabbinical school and some of the traumas associated with this uh, Torah portion. Back then, we used to have this practice of uh, delivering senior sermons. Uh, that was uh, every, uh, every uh, student during their fourth of five years of rabbinical school uh, would have to stand in front of the entire community. All of the hypercritical students and all of the hyperjudgmental faculty and some guests, even some trustees of the Hebrew Union College. And these fourth year rabbinical students would deliver what was called a senior sermon. Uh, which would then be evaluated by everyone else. It was in the middle of a morning service on a Thursday morning. And after the service was over, uh, the whole school would go downstairs on over lunch, critique the student's senior sermon. The entire discussion, I think it was about an hour, was all about how well the, uh, the fourth year student did, how good was the senior sermon and what the uh, student might want to think about uh, moving forward. Uh, and I think it was greeted with particular relish by fellow students who had a tendency to be competitive one with the other uh, and uh, hyper judgmental faculty who I think felt that this would be the equivalent of a kind of boot camp, basic training. Uh, for uh, rabbinical students who, for the first time, could now stand in front of a crowd and play act, being a rabbi. The first time they'd be able to uh, give actually a sermon in front of other people. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and I can tell you, uh, it, despite the fact that they might have looked at it as a kind of uh, boot camp, I actually spent uh, three years in the military, in the Israel Defense Forces, and I actually uh, did spend time in boot camp, in basic training, uh, in my preparation for being a tank commander. And I can tell you with certainty that in some ways, in some ways, not every way, but in some way, this senior sermon experience of basic training was even worse than the basic training uh, in the IDF. And so uh, you can understand how rabbinical students prayed on my assigned day of giving the senior sermon, just don't make it Tazria Mitzorah. Uh, and uh, that sentiment has stayed with me uh, even in my rabbinate. I feel kind of guilty uh, when the B'nai Mitzvah students that uh, are celebrating during this particular week when the Parsha is read, I feel a bit guilty that uh, they're given this Parsha. It's full of blood and guts and pus and bodily eruptions, what the teenagers uh, call TMI. Uh, but nonetheless, they uh, have to uh, grapple with it. Uh, but over time, gradually, uh, I've changed my mind about this uh, Parsha. And honestly, if I were to look at April of 2020, I can't think of a better, more relevant Parsha to give a Dvar Torah on than Tazria Mitzorah. What is described there is that when the priests would observe, the Kohanim, when they would observe that somebody was suffering from what's called tzara'at, 
We don't really know what that was. It's some kind of skin ailment. Some people understand that as leprosy. It probably wasn't, but some kind of uh, skin ailment. Uh, the priests would go and examine uh, the person. And if they determined that this person was unclean, which was a spiritual category more than a medical category or a physical category, um, they would uh, remove that person from the camp. What we would call today, they would quarantine that person. They would socially isolate that person. And this process of removing a person from the camp from antiquity until modern times is fraught with the potential for damage and destruction and prejudice and harm and suffering. We know from descriptions in antiquity, we know from Athens and Sparta and Rome of uh, descriptions of people who were weaker in society, who were removed from society. Uh, there are some Greek accounts about how they were forced to drink the hemlock. There's some accounts from Sparta that they would examine uh, young babies, young children. Uh, and if they were discovered to be deformed in some way, the accounts suggest that the, these children would be left out, exposed to the elements to, uh, to die. So uh, this was a form in antiquity of the survival of the fittest, Darwinism, 2,000 years before Darwin. And needless to say, we haven't changed all that much. We think we have, but we really haven't. We still have these prejudices against other people. We still tend to separate the good people from what we perceive to be the unhealthy people. We still have so many people around the world who are born into the wrong caste and can never get out of that caste. We still tend to separate between the beautiful people and the deformed people, uh, the strong people and the weak people, the useful people, and those who are perceived to be uh, dead weight. And we know even uh, in this country, it wasn't too long ago, our country was founded with the tolerance of slavery. Uh, and uh, slavery, as in all forms of racism and anti-Semitism, slavery was based on the assumption that there was something about those people, African-Americans, that was different from us and therefore they were of less moral worth. And, uh, the original American uh, Constitution tolerated uh, slavery and defined a slave for counting purposes as three-fifths of, uh, of a white person, which wasn't overturned until the 14th Amendment in 1868. But I'm thinking about all of this in, in April of 2020 during uh, our pandemic. And uh, in truth, even if some people don't say it outright, many people still are distinguishing uh, between those uh, the stigma of those who are ill uh, and those who are healthy in dealing with this uh, pandemic. Uh, there is the assumption that, which is true, we know that all people um, suffer from uh, COVID-19 and, and sadly, people of all ages and all backgrounds and all ethnicities pass away. Nonetheless, uh, it is also the case that uh, elderly people and people with pre-existing conditions are disproportionately 
affected by uh, COVID-19. And, and there is an express argument and there's a much more powerful, subtle argument that's coming out in all kinds of ways in the United States. That why, after all, should the entire world be shut down with all of the consequent damage that that's causing for people who are weaker in any case? Wouldn't it be better to uh, sacrifice those people for the sake of the rest of the world? It's kind of like the modern equivalent of put the elderly person out on the ice sheet and have them be exposed to the element and uh, let them uh, pass away or throw them into the river. Now, at first glance, if you were to read the Torah portion uh, superficially, you might conclude that this also is the operating assumption of the Torah portion. That is, let's separate between the healthy person and what the Bible calls metzoraim, those who have this condition of tzara'at, Let's quarantine them uh, and uh, isolate them so that we don't have to be reminded of their disfigurement and that in some way that will stick to us. But if you study the Parsha different, uh, more carefully, you will see that in fact it is completely different from this Darwin philosophy of uh, the survival of the fittest. In fact, we are taught that the Metzoraim, those who have this skin condition, were not born into this category of uh, those afflicted. Uh, and therefore, the affliction was not permanent. And therefore, the quarantine, the social isolation was not permanent. People have a tendency to look at this uh, passage and to, and to put the emphasis on these people were socially isolated. But in fact, that's the wrong emphasis. If you study the Parsha carefully, you'll see that an entire chapter, Leviticus 14, is devoted to how the priest has an obligation to build a bridge so that these people can come back into society. The point was that they should come back, not that they should be uh, isolated permanently. Uh, and the priests were allowed to exploit every possible loophole under the sun to bring people back. Uh, and this uh, tradition was embellished by the rabbis uh, so that, in effect, even somebody who still had visible signs of a skin ailment could be brought back into the community. And when they were brought back, they were welcomed in an elaborate ritual of welcome back. And so what we see here uh, in the Bible is institutionalized hope, ritualized hope. We're not going to let you sit out there isolated for too long a period of time. We are going to build a process where you are welcome back into society. Uh, it's clear that the Kohanim, the priests, were not doing medicine. They were not lab technicians. They were not medical doctors. They didn't have biotechnology assets. They, they didn't have degrees. They were doing religion. Uh, and what the Torah is teaching us is that healing is not only a medical process. Here, pop this pill and you're better. No, that of course medicine and science have a central role to play, but that's not the be all and end all of healing. That healing is also a spiritual process. It's an emotional process. It's a religious process. Uh, and uh, we now see that even after 
we are able to develop uh, treatments and uh, hopefully find a vaccine uh, for uh, this uh, COVID-19 disease. Still, we have to remember that will not be the be-all and end-all of healing. Healing is not only a vaccine process. Healing is a spiritual process, a religious process. Just take a look and see. We now understand much more deeply how underprepared and how exposed America was to a pandemic like this. Look at the nursing homes. We kind of knew all of this, but we preferred not to look at it carefully. Look at the uh, millions of people who have lost jobs and therefore have no ability to sustain themselves and their families. Look at the lines to the food bank. Look at all those Americans who have no medical insurance. Tens of millions of Americans who don't even have the basic capacity to be able to go to a doctor and to heal themselves. So what we see alongside the unbelievable brilliance and progress and wealth in this country, we also see so many now, it's exposed to us more than ever, all these moral potholes. America is physically and literally and figuratively filled with potholes. We're pockmarked with potholes. The rabbinic tradition draws a nexus, a connection between our physical well-being and our moral well-being. That they suggested that these moral, that these physical maladies that are described in the book of Leviticus have a moral dimension to them. Now, the rabbis didn't have biotechnology degrees, they didn't have medical degrees, but they weren't stupid. They realized that whatever it is that was causing this affliction didn't care about Moses and high philosophy. It's like the, the, the coronavirus doesn't care about uh, Moses or Maimonides or Jefferson or Rousseau or John Stuart Mill, obviously. At the same time, what we learn in the book of Leviticus is that uh, the essence of the epidemic in Leviticus included not only the physical dimension, it also had a moral dimension to it. And therefore, what the Bible is teaching us, we cannot be fully cured through the science and the medicine. We can only be fully cured if we cure ourselves morally as well. And that'll be the big challenge for us when we emerge from this first phase of battling the coronavirus. Even after treatments are uh, devised, and let's hope and pray that a vaccine will be available, even after, we will not be fully healed until we heal all the moral deficiencies in this country. And let us hope and let us pray that we will be up to the challenge. Shabbat shalom.